obliterate the day I was born, blank out the night I was conceived, let it be a black hole in space. May God above forget it ever happened. Erase it from the books. May the day of my birth be buried in deep darkness, shrouded by the fog, shallow, swallowed by the night. And the night of my conception, the devil take it. Rip the date off the calendar. Delete it from the almanac. Oh, turn that night into poor nothingness. No sounds of pleasure from that night ever. May those who are good at cursing days curse that day. Unleash the sea beast, Leviathan on it. May its morning stars turn to black cinders, waiting for a daylight that never comes. Never once seeing the first light of dawn. And why? Because it released me from my mother's womb into a life with so much trouble. Why didn't I die at birth? My first breath out of the womb, my last. Why were there arms to rock me and breast for me to drink from? I could be resting in peace right now, asleep forever, feeling no pain in the company of kings and statesmen in their royal ruins or with princes resplendent in their gold and silver tombs. Why wasn't I still born and buried with all the babies who never saw light? Why does God bother giving light to the miserable? Why bother keeping bitter people alive? Those who want in the worst way to die and can't. Who can't imagine anything better than death. Who count the day of their death and burial the happiest day of their life. What's the point of life when it doesn't make sense? When God blocks all the roads to meaning. Instead of bread... I get groans for my supper. Then leave the table and vomit my anguish. The worst of my fears has come true. What I've dreaded most has happened. My repose is shattered. My peace destroyed. No rest for me ever. Death has invaded my life. Job had it all. He had a large family. He had many blessings from God and much wealth, and he lost it all. Now, I think it's important for you to realize that there's an upper stage that is present here. And the upper stage being where Satan and God are having this conversation about what God will allow have happened to Job. We also know that there is a lower stage. This is where Job and his wife are completely unaware of what was happening on the upper stage. As readers of a story after the fact, it is very easy for us to have what we call in psychology hindsight bias. Or play Monday morning quarterback. Since we know the whole story, but at the time, Job did not know the whole story. He was dealing with severe loss, grief, bereavement, and possibly 
depression at this time. I want to ask you a question. Have you been here before? Can you empathize with Job? As you just saw me acting out what the scene might have looked like for Job in chapter 3, ashes were oftentimes used in ancient times to express grief. When Tamar was raped by her half-brother, she also used ashes to express her loss and trauma. Let's look at her response during this trauma. Tamar sprinkled ashes on her head, tore her robe, and with her face, buried in her hands, went away weeping, crying. Job is sitting around in ashes throughout this entire book. If I were a friend of Job's, then I probably would have endearingly nicknamed him Ash Dog. As you watch me up here, you may have noticed my rocking back and forth as I was playing the role of Job. This is a quote from a client who experienced significant trauma in her childhood. When things hit that wall, I find myself rocking back and forth. It's like I'm a child again. And I feel very upset. So I begin to rock back and forth. It seems to be a comforting way to hide in myself. You may have seen someone doing this before after a significant trauma. These are signs that people or emergency medical uh, personnel look for after scenes of a trauma. Think of the behavior in this way. The gentle rocking of a cradle soothes newborns and babies. It is a form of regressing to a more infantile state in order to bring some kind of comfort and peace in time of a chaos. Job has experienced great trauma and is definitely mourning and lamenting. So here are some questions that people oftentimes ask when they find themselves in this state. God, where are you? God, if you love me, then why? God, why do you allow bad things to happen to good people? These are great questions, by the way. You are in very good company if you have ever asked or are currently asking such questions. These are similar questions asked by Job, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, David, and the one we are supposed to model after, Jesus. According to the four Gospels, Jesus was amazingly and relatively silent during his arrest and crucifixion. But listen to the words that our Savior did speak while enduring indescribable pain and suffering on the cross. Now this was the most horrific death and painful physical death known to man during this time. In addition, Jesus experienced incomprehensible 
spiritual pain as he took on all of humanity's sin, past, present, and future. So listen very carefully to this question that he asked. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Michael Card wrote this. The cross on which Jesus hung was a nexus, meaning a link or connection, where pain, this is very important, where pain and healing intersected. The healing is God's grace which flows like the blood from Jesus' side. The real solution for pain and suffering is found in His presence. One of the biggest lies in the therapeutic world is that Time heals all wounds. The truth is that Jesus heals all wounds. Can I get an amen? Some of you right now are in the winter and are waiting on the ensuing spring. What if we consider the winter... Pure joy. Experiencing joy despite our circumstances does not mean that the winter goes away. It means that God is walking hand in hand with you during any season of life that you are experiencing. That brings me comfort. Did you know that Satan's name means adversary? And he has been called the accuser of the brethren. God sets out to prove to Satan that Job is not righteous but just because he is being blessed, but because he is of perfect integrity. Satan is out to freeze each and every one of us. Many of you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, and specifically the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The evil white witch has taken over Narnia and has brought year-round winter. So here's a picture of what that looks like. And listen to what Mr. Tumnus says here. It is winter in Narnia and has been for ever so long. Always winter. But never Christmas. Let me share with you just for a moment my own winter of the heart. It happened in the spring of 1998. I was in the final semester of my doctoral studies in counseling psychology. Doing an internship. I was having a difficult season with a clinical supervisor at that time. Who thought I was behind and deficient in my progress as a counselor. Those are pretty tough words to hear when you've invested so much time and so much money and you're getting close to graduation. This was a crisis for me. 
I had poured out everything into this doctoral program. And at the potential of losing this, I crashed and burned and experienced winter. I became very anxious, and this soon wore me out where I became depressed. I could no longer see clients during this season of winter. I began seeing a counselor and started taking medication for the depression that I was suffering. One morning as Yvonne was getting ready for work and I was lying in bed, I asked her, I said, sweetie, I need you to lock up our pistol and I need you to take the key with you. I was in a very, very bad place. I immediately called a dear friend of mine, Cliff Davidson. He's an MD. He came over on my worst day and sat with me that entire day to make sure I would be okay. I reached out for help. I was already receiving help. Yvonne was there for me. Cliff was there for me. My dog was there for me. My counselor was there for me. And God had never left me. Praise you, God. Please, I beg you, don't suffer alone and or in silence. If Satan, our adversary, can isolate you, then he has you right where he wants you. Also, don't expect others to read your mind. Or even your nonverbals. Share what is going on with you. At Bryan, we have a wonderful counseling center, small groups, Bible studies, a mentoring program, faculty, staff, fellow students are, who are all here to be with you during that season of pain. Job's friends tried to console him, but they soon started to blame him for his own troubles inferring that he must have sinned in order for all these trials to come upon him. That is something that is far too easy for believers to do. You know what? Job's friends really get a bad rap in a lot of ways. John Ortberg shared this at a conference I attended. Although the words of Job's friends were hurtful, their actions were brilliant. Let's look at that scene for a second. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, and Dadgum the Termite, no, I'm sorry, (laughs) heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. Now listen to this. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him sitting on that ash heap. They began to weep aloud. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. Without saying a word. This is what in Jewish culture is called sitting sevens. Sitting shiva. That's a loyal friend. Can you imagine sitting in the ashes for seven days without saying a word? 
We all need to be a friend like that. And we need more friends like that. Most of us have a hard time sitting with a friend for 10 minutes without being distracted by our phone or thinking about what is next on our list of to-dos. This type of commitment shown by Job's friends could take a lot of pressure off of our pastors, our counselors, and psychologists. I was listening to a a message by Dr. David Jeremiah a few weeks ago on the faithfulness of God. And he shared something which really resonated with me. He said, when I was in seminary, I had to take classes in Hebrew, which really challenged me. I know we've got some of those folks out here today. There was much that I was not familiar with, including the Hebrew alphabet. Dr. Jeremiah goes on to say, So, I struggled reading Hebrew. Another very difficult piece to get used to in reading Hebrew is that the text is read from right to left versus left to right. And from back to front versus front to back. He says, I liken this to the faithfulness of God. Sometimes it is only when we look backward can we understand or comprehend what God has done in our lives and how he has been faithful? God has been faithful without fail. He is there with us from the beginning. He's the alpha and he will be there with us to the very end. He is the omega. Probably hadn't seen a lot of Stephen King quotes in chapel before. Stephen King, the author who has written many novels about uh, darkness and winter, wrote this. We did not ask for this room or this music. We were invited in. Therefore, because the dark surrounds us, let us turn our faces to the light. Let us endure hardship to be grateful for plenty. We have been given life to deny death. We did not ask for this room or this music. But because we are here, let us dance. We are fallen creatures in a fallen world who desperately want to avoid the pain of this world's fallenness. But let me pose to you just maybe a different way to frame that idea. Pain in life is inevitable. But misery is optional. Misery is our fleshly attempt to make this life work without complete dependency on God. Often, our lust for control, waywardness, and self-reliance blocks the Spirit's desire to appropriate God's grace in each of life's circumstances and Cetus wrote this in our daily bread devotional back in August my co-worker Tom keeps an 8 inch by 12 inch glass cross on his desk his friend Phil who like Tom is a cancer survivor another winter of the heart gave it to him to help him look at everything through the cross The glass cross is a constant reminder of God's love and good purposes for him. That's a challenging idea for all believers 
in Jesus, especially during difficult times, it's much easier to focus on our problems than on God's love. The Apostle Paul's life was certainly an example of having a cross-shaped perspective. He described himself in times of suffering as being persecuted, but not abandoned. Hear that? Struck down, but not destroyed. He believed that in the hard times, God is at work. Achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what, on what is unseen. To fix our eyes on what is unseen does not mean we minimize the problem. On the other hand, there is a sober recognition that we groan with hope mingled with pain. Jesus gave his life for us. His love is deep and sacrificial. As we look at life through this cross, we see his love and his faithfulness and our trust in him grows. And sometimes we have to look backward. The wound is the place where the light enters you. Father, please teach each of us who you are. Increase our trust in you. Fill our minds with your cross-shaped, empty tomb perspective. You are in control. You are in charge. And you are sovereign. And we don't have to be. Aren't you glad that God's faithfulness to you is not conditional on your faithfulness to him? Psalm 89 shares that his faithfulness surrounds us. Malachi 3 states that God does not change and we can count on him despite our circumstances. Henry Nouwen wrote this. Hope is not dependent on peace in the land, justice in the world, and success in the business. Hope makes you see God's guiding hand not only in the gentle and pleasant moments, but also in the shadows of disappointment and darkness. So I want to ask you this question. Do you just know about him or do you know him? There's nothing like knowing him. As Job found out in the difficult and wintry seasons of life, knowing God is so important when we are being attacked by our adversary. Jesus is the only one who is victorious over him forever and ever and ever. Amen. I want to invite you today to acknowledge the pain. Experience the pain in its fullness. Invite God into your pain and ask Him to restore and heal you. I promise you this, He will never leave you nor forsake you. He will hold your hand. He will even hold you in his arms and rock you back and forth during very wintry seasons because he's a good God. And I can say that with great confidence. So returning back to Aslan for a second, if you remember, winter had come. 
Many of the original characters in Aslan were frozen. I want to bring you to this scene right here. Look what Aslan did in Narnia. Aslan gently breathes on Mr. Tumnus, who was frozen by the white witch and brings him back to life. He brings spring and life back to Narnia. All because he was willing to suffer for you and me and all those in Narnia. Here's the beautiful promise. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything, everything new. God has the last and final word. Our worship team is now going to come forward. They have selected uh, two wonderful songs that I pray will wash over you, will bless you, and will bring healing to you.